you have your Bibles open to Jeremiah 25. The Protestant Reformation brought on a great deal of turmoil in Europe. And in the late 17th century, there was a terrible persecution against Protestants in France. In the late 17th century, Marie Durant was 15 years old. She was newly married, and she was a Protestant. She was discovered as a Protestant and brought before the authorities and charged as one and then asked simply to recant. So she stood as a 15-year-old girl in front of a number of ecclesiastical authoritative types and she understood that if she recanted, she went on and led the life that she wanted to live at 15 and just married. If she didn't recant, that she would probably be thrown into prison. Marie Durant refused to recant. And together with 30 other women, she was imprisoned in a stone tower that was in the southern part of France, near the ocean. Marie Durant lived there for the next 38 years. Many times over the 38 years, she was spoken to and said, Marie, would you like to recant? And she never did. Eventually, a letter that she wrote herself made it to a governor in the area, which described with great detail the horror of her living conditions with the other women. And after 38 years, she was released. You and I could go visit that tower today. And if you walked in, you would see nothing but stone walls with one word scratched into the stone walls. The word resist. For for 38 years, these women scratched and re-scratched the same area so that now, some 400 years later, you could still see the one word, resist. One historian writes about Marie Durant this way, the word is still seen in the tower and gaped at by tourists. We do not understand the terrifying simplicity of a religious commitment which asks nothing of time and gets nothing from time. We can understand a religion which enhances time, but we cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporary hope that tomorrow things will be better. To sit in a prison room with 30 others and to see the day change into night and summer into autumn, to feel the changes within one's flesh, the drying and wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the stiffening of joints, and still to persevere seems almost idiotic to our generation 
which has no capacity to wait and to endure. I, I read an account like that, and, and I'm asking myself, what makes up a person like that? What, what's, what's the stuff that they're made of? What's, what's their fiber that they're able to persevere for 38 years in that kind of situation? Because I want some of that. And, and as the pastor of this church, I, I want to be fostering an environment where you all can have that kind of fiber that if you are called on at any moment to recant, that you would, with a heavy heart, but with a willing heart, turn away from your marriage, turn away from your home, turn away from whatever dream and life you had in mind, and you would spend 38 years in a stone prison. I want to be more of that kind of person. I want you to have that kind of substance. But you and I live in a culture based on speed and convenience. We yell at our computer screens when they're sluggish. We get frustrated at going to the grocery store and there's not enough lines open. And you have to wait two or three deep to get your milk. You scream at stoplights. You try to resist honking at people who are driving slower than the speed limit. You pace in front of your microwave. We live in this place of convenience and we've got to have it right now. And if anything sort of gets in that way of serving my particular need, then we become easily agitated. And I'm wondering what makes Marie Durant work because we need that kind of fiber. I thought as I prepared the sermon on perseverance a lot about Charles and the Christians that we have befriended in Haiti. Most of the Christians that we met in Haiti lived in houses that you and I would not even step into in America. They're all made of mud and have thatched roofs. They have a church that you and I, if it was in America, you, you and I would not visit it. We would ride by and just say, well, that's, that's one of the places I'm not going to go. And now, the things that you and I wouldn't step into don't even exist. The Miami Herald wrote this about Charles and his um, church. As the wind howled and rain tore through the Haitian village of Messiae, Charles Amasi huddled on a dark staircase with his family. Amasi and his wife tried to console the group of six children, three of them his own, three orphans. As they wept, he encouraged them to pray. And they sang religious songs to help block out the screams of neighbors. It was the darkest night of my life, said Amasi, a Presbyterian pastor. People were crying, save me, save me, but there was nothing we could do. Also stolen by Ike, the name of the storm, 
more than $300,000 in prescription drugs from the compound's pharmacy. Five vehicles used by the ministry, including a school bus, a dump truck, and a van. After assessing the damage the next morning and handing out spaghetti to hungry storm victims, Amosy knew he had to somehow get his family back safely to Port-au-Prince. So they started walking. Barefoot. With only the clothes on their backs. Amosy led his family up the hills, away from the water, on a four-mile walk to the main road, and there they were picked up and driven to the city. Even after all the des- devastation and heartache among Haitians, Amosy's spirit remains unfaltering. We will rebuild, he said. I don't know how, but I know that God will help us. How is it that you have that kind of fiber in your life? That you can continue to persevere even when your trajectory seems all downhill. I mean, it's one thing to persevere if you feel like you're, you're finally getting on top of things, but how is it that you and I would persevere if we just looked and saw all of the trajectory was leading downhill? And that's where we get some help from Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached in the same city, in the same church, to the same people for 40 years, and they didn't listen. And the consequence of that was the destruction, not only of the city and of the temple, but of Jeremiah, the preacher himself. He started, when he started his ministry, he was at his highest point. And he had to persevere in a 40-year downward trajectory. Verse 3, for 23 years, now here we are about the halfway point in chapter 25, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have been speaking persistently to you, but you have not listened. The word persistent in the Hebrew means to shoulder a burden. So you're meant to get a a picture uh, of a pack mule or maybe of a person laying the the weight of the burden across their shoulders and they're going to carry that burden some distance. And so Jeremiah has gotten up underneath the load of his people and he's trying to carry the Word of God to these people. And he's having to do it persistently. Now, how many here are teenagers? Let me just see a show of hands. How many are teenagers? 13 to 19. Jeremiah was called as a teenager. Marie Durant was called as a 15-year-old girl. And they were called to shoulder a very heavy load. And I'm wondering about you. Are you prepared? Don't, don't, don't look at me. I've got to ask myself that question. But don't look and say, well, maybe when I get to be 25 or 35 or 45. If you're 15, are you prepared to stand up and carry the load for Christ? 
How is it you build that kind of fiber in your life? And Jeremiah gives us some help. The three things I want to uh, address this morning, and hopefully this alliteration may help you. First, he had the right priority. Secondly, he had the right practice. And finally, he had partners. Priority, practice, and partners. Verse 4, you get a glimpse here of Jeremiah's priority. For 23 years, I listened to the word, then I came to you. For 23 years, I got in touch with what God was saying, and then I got in touch with the world. Jeremiah before he spoke his first word to the world, he got his word from God. Before Jeremiah considered his thoughts, he considered God's thoughts. Before Jeremiah took his first steps, he made sure he understood which direction God was going. For 23 years, he got up and he oriented himself around God's word before he felt the gravitational effects of his world. Now, if you're a teenager here, I cannot give you any better advice than this. Even if you're a non-teenager, I cannot give you any better advice than this. You and I get up and we go out into the world that has massive gravitational effects on our life. You must look this way. You must live this way. If you want to be successful, you're going to have to do these things. And it doesn't matter if you're 12 or you're 22 or you're 82. When you step outside of your door, you have some massive gravitational effects on your life. And so you and I have to get up and we have to center ourselves around the unchanging Word of God Almighty before we get influenced by the words of the world. And if we don't orient orient ourselves around what He's doing and what He wants to say, then if we just walk out to the high school or we walk out to the business, or we just think things in our own minds, you will be completely out of orbit in just a few moments. And Jeremiah had his priority down. Jeremiah, who also wrote the book of Lamentations, which is sort of a book of complaints, Uh, Not necessarily against the Lord, but just he lived a tough life and Lamentations helps you see his heart. He writes this in Lamentations chapter 3. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. Yet, I call this to mind. And therefore, I have hope. What, Jeremiah? I am leaning in. When I have lost a sense of prosperity, when, when I have been deprived of peace, I want to know how I can have hope. And this is what he says. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not, not consumed. For His compassions never fail. 
They are new, what? Every morning. You hear that? Jeremiah had to get up and say, I've got all kinds of gravitational pulls from my family. I've got all kinds of gravitational pulls from my past. I've got all kinds of gravitational pulls from my culture. And if I'm not, if I'm not careful, I'm going to be running in to these other things. And I'm going to be completely out of orbit. So every morning, Jeremiah gets his orientation. And now he is oriented to God Almighty. And everything else in his life flows around that singular orientation. Contrast the people in Jeremiah's day. Verse 4, But you have not listened. You have not inclined your ears to hear. Inclined is a, is a picture of stretching out for the finish line. You're, you're not stretching out for me. Instead, you have provoked me. Verse 7. You have provoked me with what your hands have made. And listen to this. You have brought harm to yourselves. You see what he's saying? You stretched out for the wrong thing. You're wearing yourself out for the wrong thing. And it's not only provoking me, God, to anger. You're harming yourself. You're going in the wrong direction. And Jeremiah is pleading with his people. You're, you're consumed by the work of your own hands. You've lost your sense of priority. You're harming yourselves. Now, I know this book was written 2,500 years ago. And so sometimes you have to mentally try to use your imagination to get back to what these people must have been thinking. So I'm going to ask you to work hard, but try to imagine a culture where people were so captured by their work that their work gave them their identity. Can you imagine living in a culture like that? That their complete identity revolved around their work. Whenever you ask somebody about themselves, the first way they explain themselves to you was, I do. Their complete identity is wrapped around their work, who they are, what they're worth. Imagine a people who can't turn their work off. Can you imagine living in a culture like that? That even though they wouldn't necessarily say it, they think this, I'm irreplaceable. Nobody can do the job that I'm doing. Do you hear how easily warped a person who even thinks that becomes? Or imagine people captured by a lifestyle, a house, a sports team, that all of their time and energy as a family was so stretched out for those things that there was precious little time to really stretch, your, stretch yourself out for the things of God. God is saying to people like that, 
You're completely out of orbit. You're getting all the stuff. You got all the stuff in your house. You had to go rent other places that hold stuff that your house can't hold. You've put so much of your stuff into the garage, you can't get the one piece of stuff that's supposed to go into your garage in your garage. You, you got all the stuff, but you don't have me. You're completely out of orbit. You have not oriented yourself around me and my word. You're not primarily concerned about my kingdom. You're primarily concerned about your kingdom. Now that was the kind of culture that Jeremiah was preaching to. And if you and I want to be people who can do heavy lifting... We're going to have to have a different set of priorities. It is not going to be possible for you to do any really heavy lifting without a different set of priorities. You can be busy for Christ, but it will not be heavy lifting. If you do not know first His Word and His way, And the way you understand that is getting involved every morning in His Word. So how are you doing? If you think, gosh, I think He's talking to me right now. I might be. Are you getting up in the morning? Are you orienting orienting yourself around God and His Word? Or are when it's it's first thing when you wake up, you just start thinking about your work. You just start going through the mental list then you've got a wrong orientation. You're out of orbit. You're missing what's really important. If you're a teenager, now's the time. It's not next year. It's not when I'm 25. It's right now. Now's the time to get your orientation right. Parents, You are setting an example for your children. Do do they see you have that orientation? Because if they don't see you have that orientation, they're not going to get into that orbit. So how are you doing on displaying that to your family? The second thing that helps Jeremiah be somebody of persistence beyond just the priority of God's Word is his ability to discipline himself and to curb his appetite and his impulse. He has the right kind of practice. The world has had a a gravitational pull on everybody, and he's watching the people just fly out the door towards these other things. Their appetites, their impulses control them. And here I want to point back to Jeremiah chapter 2 when Jeremiah describes the people this way. You are like a restless female camel. Imagine this as your sermon text. You are desperate for a male. You're like a wild donkey sniffing the wind at mating time. Who can restrain your lusts? 
You see, the, the people in Jeremiah's day were not able to pursue and persevere in real heavy lifting because of their appetites and their impulses. It's not that their appetites and impulses were always wrong, it's that they always caved into them. It's not wrong to eat. And it's not wrong to have sex. But in the wrong places and with the wrong amount of quantity, then you've got yourself in a problem. You're just totally wrapped around your appetite or your impulse. It's what drives you around the world. Jeremiah wasn't winning a popularity contest when he stood up and looked at his congregation and says, you're just acting like animals in heat. He was not building a seeker-friendly service at that particular point. There's no restraint on your appetite. If you and I want to persevere, if we want to be like the the person Jeremiah, if we want to be able to, to have the same kind of fiber that Marie Durant has, the first step in that is a willingness to say no. Say that with me, because it's not that hard. Let's try it together. Ready? No. See, it wasn't that hard, was it? I mean, it's not really a hard word to say. It's kind of a fun word. No. You can say it a lot of different ways. No. No. I mean, it's all kinds of easy ways to say no. It's not a hard word to say. It's a hard word to apply. I wonder how many times in 38 years Marie Durant had to say no. I mean, I don't know. She's 15 and maybe she thought, hey, this will last a week. It's going to last a month. I wonder what she thought when she turned 20. When she turned 30. When she turned 40. When she turned 50. Imagine the 15-year-old girl now turning 50. I wonder how many times she had to walk back to the stone wall and just put her fingers back over the Word. Resist. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not the Paul Phillips translation, blessed is the man who says no. The blessed man is the man who can walk through the world and say, you know what? No. I'm not going in that direction. I'm not going to act on my impulse. I'm not going to act on my appetite. I'm going to learn how to say the word no, and I'm going to learn how to act on it. Certainly, this is something that Adam and Eve could have used. I mean, Adam and Eve had the Word, did they not? 
They clearly understood the Word. So they got the first part of the equation down. They understood what the Lord had said. But what happened? There was a breakdown. There was a breakdown in the discipline. And this is what Genesis chapter 3 says. The woman saw the fruit of the tree and that it was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye. And they just couldn't say no. It's just one little sin. Have you ever fooled yourself into that kind of thinking? It's just one little place, Paul, that I'm not saying no. I wonder if Adam and Eve ever thought that on the other side of the garden wall. It was just one little place. But do you realize the the destruction that gets carried out by our inability to say no. When I was a freshman in college, I think there was something rigged, but around 10 or 10.30, somebody would order a pizza on my hallway. And so there's 30 rooms, I guess, on my hallway. And the Domino's guy or whoever, he comes with a big, large pizza And I think he did this. I never saw him do it, but I'm just fairly certain he did it. He took the pizza box, and as he was finding his way to the room, he would pass your door, and you open the box and sort of fan the pizza smell into your room. And I had no desire to eat a pizza until I smelled it. And and I just had to call. I just had to call every time. I could never resist. I could never just say, no, I don't have to eat that. No, I have to eat that right now. Have you ever felt that way? I wasn't even thinking in that direction. But something's come across my screen and now it feels like I have to have it right now. I wasn't thinking about that with that girl. I wasn't thinking about needing to purchase that. That's just a desire. But now that I've seen those things, it just feels like I have to have them right now. That is a lie. There are very few things that you have to have right now. One of the ways that helps us learn to say no is the discipline of fasting. So if you do not exercise this discipline in your life, you should. And whether it's fasting from one particular meal or a day or however you want to orient it, this isn't the time to give a sermon on that. I think I actually have a sermon on it you could pick up. But learning to say no to your physical hunger spreads out to say no to other places in your life. So if you're struggling to say no financially, if you're struggling to say no sexually, if you're struggling just to not open your mouth and say things that you wish you didn't say the moment they're coming out of your mouth, then you need some other place to help you build up this reserve of saying no. And fasting is really one of the best disciplines that we can exercise. So Jeremiah has a priority. He has the right practice. And finally, he has uh, the right people or a partner. We read from Hebrews, this familiar passage, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin 
that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance or let us run with endurance the race that is marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We've got we to gotta fix our eyes. We've got to get the right orientation. I don't know if you watch much of the Olympics, uh, but when, especially on the gymnasts, found this fascinating. They come off the high bar, whether it was the guys or the girls, and they're doing, you know, 28,000 flips and turns and stuff, and you're just stunned that they can end up like this, you know? And so when they would review the little videotape, this is what the commentator would say after they flung themselves off the bar. They, in kind of slow motion, the commentator would say, see, right here, he or she, right here in this turn, look at them, they're trying to find the floor. Now, when you just watch them, it does, you don't know that. But in the slow motion, you just notice their glance. In, in the midst of all this spinning and turning, right at this moment, they're trying to find the floor. They're trying to get the right orientation. They're trying to get a fix on the one thing that is stable. And how does the Hebrew writer suggest that you and I can fix our eyes on Jesus? He says it in the first part of the verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we can fix our eyes on Jesus. See, when you and I find ourselves saying, Paul, I'm out of orbit. Well, you might need to restructure your priority. You might need to have some practices, but you're going to need some people in your life to help orient you back to the right kind of orbit. And so in Hebrews 11, the writer gives all kinds of great stories of people who have really stuck their landing. And that's supposed to be an encouragement to you. It's supposed to be an encouragement to me. Marie Durant is an encouragement to me this morning. Charles Amesey is an encouragement to me this morning. For Jeremiah, there's a prophet in chapter 26. His name is Uriah. He's a prophet just like Jeremiah. And it says this about him. He prophesied against the city in the words just like those of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was going to one church and saying one thing. And Uriah was going to a church down the street saying the same thing. Uriah got caught by the authorities, run through by a sword, and thrown out at the gate of Jerusalem. So I'm wondering, for the next 20 years as Jeremiah passes through that gate, hey, Uriah, he's over there. He kept the faith. Before they ran him through with a sword, he could have recanted, but he didn't. Imagine the energy that Jeremiah got from that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna resist. I'm gonna keep at it. How many times did Marie want to turn around and one of the 30 women said, Marie, we're not going that way. We're going a different way. Do you have somebody in your life that when you get out of orbit, they can say, you know what? We are not going to go that way. Ultimately, Jeremiah, 
in conclusion, his perseverance was helped by priority. It's helped by practice. It was helped by people. But he wasn't basing his perseverance on those things. He was basing his perseverance on Christ. I have hope, he says in Lamentations 3. I have hope because of the Lord's great love. His compassions never fail. My compassions fail all the time. So I'm not basing my faithfulness on my compassions. I'm basing my faithfulness on God's compassions. They're the same. They're new every morning. And then what does he end the verse with? Great is your faithfulness. You have been faithful. And so if you're here and you're persevering under whatever the situation, whatever the circumstances, your perseverance helps people see this perseverance. Marie Durant's perseverance is helping someone see this perseverance. And when people watch you persevere successfully, they ask themselves, what's on the inside of that person? And your perseverance points people to the cross. And you will say, it's not my faithfulness, it's His faithfulness that matters. It's possible that you're here and you're trying to figure this whole Christianity thing out. And you've gotten this idea. Yeah, I, I, I think I understand this Jesus thing and He's the way I want to go and, and I need to get up to speed. The Bible couldn't any, be any clearer. You're never going to get up to speed. See, because it's not about your speed. It's about Christ's work. Do not think you're going to be able to come to Him based on your faithfulness. What you need to do is come and say, I know I'm completely unfaithful and I'm completely unreliable, but I know that you're totally reliable. I'm putting my faith in you. And if you're here and you're suffering, Maybe that people know it, and quite honestly, a lot of the real suffering that happens is stuff that people don't know. He is faithful. His mercies are new every morning. He will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for a prophet like Jeremiah who after 23 years continues to say the same truth over and over and over again. Thank You for people like Marie Durant, for Charles Amesey, and and hundreds of other people that we may know that have persevered and their perseverance has given us hope to carry on for another day. 
Lord, as we take this special offering and consider our brothers and sisters in Haiti, I pray for the spiritual help that's needed in that country. All the money and materials in the world will not answer the real questions that they have there. And that is, who is the hope of the world? So I lift up Charles, I lift up the pastors, I lift up the Christians in these towns, particularly in Messiah, and pray that their perseverance in this very difficult time actually is used by you to point people to the Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.